Welcome to Trial Lawyer View, a podcast for and about trial lawyers. We will tell the stories about trial lawyers go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. This is about their stories and their practices. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason Lazarus, your host for Trial Lawyer View. Thank you for tuning in today for another episode. Trial Lawyer View is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. In full disclosure, I'm not a professional podcaster. Instead, my day job is Chief Executive Officer of Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues that arise at settlement, like troublesome lien resolution issues, Medicare secondary payer compliance, government benefit preservation techniques, and complex settlement planning. Welcome to Trial Lawyer View, the podcast where we bring you insights and inspiration from some of the brightest minds in the personal injury legal world. And I'm really excited about today's episode. We're thrilled to have Michael McGill as our guest. He's the founder and CEO of Crisp. I got your, your pronounced your last name right, right, Michael? Mogul. Uh, Crisp is the nation's number one law firm growth company. And Michael's the author of The Game Changing Attorney and a podcast of the same name. And let me read you a little bit about Michael. He started his company in 2012, which is $500 to his name and has since grown the company into a 70-employee powerhouse that's helped thousands of law firms differentiate themselves from competitors and earn millions in new revenue. He's a sought-after speaker and has been featured in Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, and more. In this episode, uh, we'll discuss his incredible journey from his humble beginnings to his big risks and even bigger rewards. We're going to talk about his unconventional approach to marketing, including giving away a Tesla as a referral prize, and hosting his own conference and focus on key strategies he's found to be most effective in helping law firms grow and succeed. So whether you're a solo practitioner or part of a larger personal injury law firm, this episode is definitely for you. Uh, so let's dive into the world of marketing and growth in the legal space with Michael on Trial Lawyer Review. Michael, welcome to Trial Lawyer Review. Very happy to have you join me as a guest today and appreciate you taking the time out. Yeah, thank you for having me. So um, I, I'm interested because being an entrepreneur and the journey being uh, an interesting one, your start and how you took what was a very, you know, uh, humble beginnings, as I said in the, in the introduction and uh, turned it into a dynamic growing company in Crisp. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. yeah so I'll, I'll give you the, uh, I'd say the, the shortest version, right? So just to avoid making this like a six hour podcast, but it, you know, I'm basically, you kind of like the immigrant story. So my family and I, we immigrated to America back in the, in the 1990s, we came over here, my, my parents, we were refugees essentially. Um, and when, when my parents came here, ironically, they also had $500 to their name. It was my, my brother and I, my grandparents, my mom and my dad, and my dad was an engineer. My mom was a nurse, but their degrees didn't transfer. So they had to start over. So I kind of grew up in somewhat of an entrepreneurial household because my dad would go on to start an auto shop. He was, you know, became an auto mechanic. And at the same time, like, I think there was, I mean, I, I think I had a great childhood. I grew up with great parents. Um, I was originally, you know, when you're the son of like Jewish immigrants, the, the career path options are basically doctor or lawyer, right? So entrepreneur was not, you know, one of the, 
it wasn't what it is today. Let's, let's put it that way. This is pre shark tank. This was not popularized or glamorized or anything like that by any means. Um, so I did, I went to, I went to college. I was a biology major. I took the MCAT. I got into medical school, but ultimately I, uh, I, I think I made a very important decision looking back in hindsight. This is probably one of the best decisions I made, which was to, to, put in for a deferral, which essentially meant that I would take a year before going to medical school to just kind of explore other things and other paths and, and potentially even other other careers because I'd spent a lot of, you know, probably well over a hundred hours, probably several hundred hours shadowing doctors and surgeons and physicians and so on. And just I just being entrepreneurial myself, uh, I just did not feel that that would be the right path for me, but I didn't know what would be the right path. And this was back in 2008, market tanks. I go from honors graduate to now working at a, at a dive bar. So it was a place called Taco Mac, which is similar to a Buffalo Wild Wings. And then from there, I was able to, uh, to kind of move on to my next career, which was working at the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, where I was effectively washing lab equipment. So from washing dishes to washing lab equipment. And while I was at the CDC, I, I bought a camera, like a photography camera, because I figured this would be a good lifetime like skill or hobby to learn, just how to take good pictures. So I'd be out there taking pictures of like plants and trees and landscapes and things like that. And for me growing up, like my hobbies would always become more than hobbies. So I just would become obsessed. And I, you know, my first obsession when I got this camera was I wanted to be a really great photographer. And then from there sprouted a photography business and just, you know, and then from the photography business sprouted a video company. And then that video company, which at the time was focusing primarily in the nightlife and the hospitality space would later expand into the corporate space. This is what led to, you know, starting crisp. And we'd worked it with larger brands like Coca-Cola and Verizon and Red Bull. And we produced their videos for them. And then kind of several years in, so I started the company in 2012. It was quite the journey to get to our first client. So when I started the company, I had $500 to my name. Um, it, it was just failure after failure after failure. And back in 2012, online video is not what it is today. This is before, you know, you, you just see video everywhere. But back then, you know, video is primarily used more in traditional mediums. So large agencies like Ogilvy and so on would be producing TV commercials, but you wouldn't really see small businesses. Uh, even even YouTube wasn't what it is today. So, you know, every time I'd meet with someone, I'd talk about, you know, this online video and the importance of video and people just really weren't sure. And it took me 22 consecutive meetings. I got 21 consecutive no's, but on the 22nd, when I was down, you know, to that last 500 bucks, and it was actually a little bit less because there's, there's kind of a story behind getting that 22nd client. But that's where we got the first one. It was an agricultural client. Um, so I, I spent several months um, filming like peanuts and crops and things like that on, on various farms across America. And it, a few years into to this business, we had a lawyer. She came to us. She had a um, great attorney, but no online presence. Uh, she did not really have the resources to compete against traditional advertisers on like TV and radio and billboards. We produced several videos for her, um, to, distributed them online. Her business exploded. We did this for another law firm and another law firm. And then what I didn't know anything about the legal industry at the time, but as I started to learn more and more, I started to see that here's a highly competitive, extremely saturated very much commoditized market, especially in the eyes of consumers. And what were we doing? Well, we were creating videos that were telling the stories of our lawyers and, and building connections and authenticity and trust to decommoditize them and help them stand out. So we were really giving them a fighting chance where they couldn't really you know, invest in traditional mediums like TV, radio, and billboard, but the barrier to entry on social media on platforms like Facebook and YouTube and LinkedIn and Instagram and so on was 
the barrier entry was essentially there was there was no barrier entry. Anyone could create a, a a Facebook page or a business page and post video content. So we've essentially went from creating videos to then placing the content and helping our clients build their brands. And then several years ago, we also expanded that out into actually coaching our firms because we realized that if you can stand out and differentiate, you can get the phone to ring. But then ultimately, if you don't know how to answer the phones, if the leadership team isn't there, if there's no foundation in the law firm, if there's no systems, if there's no processes, the absolute worst thing you can do is pour on more marketing. So that's where we got into the coaching space and, and we've grown ever since. Man, there's a lot to unpack there uh, and some some great little things in there that I want to ask you about. But uh, one, I identify with your story because my parents moved here to Central Florida with base, basically nothing and started a business and neither of them went to college. So like that, that for me was what sparked my, you know, uh, curiosity and, and desire about becoming an entrepreneur. Um, so I definitely identify with that. I, I'm curious because you, you, the last little thing you talked about is, is something that to me is missing in the education of lawyers, which is, you know, we go to law school uh, and we, we learn about how to be a lawyer, but oftentimes we, we wind up running a business because the law firm, if you're a lawyer, is a business. Um, I've, you know, I've, I've started my own company in addition to having uh, a law firm, but you don't get any training in the idea of, of how to operate a law firm optimally and efficiently that that's just a brilliant area to help law firms improve upon that, particularly, I think, in in this niche space that we work in. So I'm curious about what you've seen and how have you been able to help law firms improve in that respect? Yeah, I mean, I think you nailed it. Without a doubt, I mean, law school is is designed to to, to hopefully teach lawyers to practice law. I mean, we'll see how effective that, that is today, but it's that's that's essentially the goal of it. But it's, it has really nothing to do with how to run a successful law firm and how to be a great leader and how to be an effective marketer and, and ultimately how to run a you know a great team. So you find many lawyers, probably most lawyers out there struggling where they come out and they say, hey, I thought I just had to be a great lawyer. And they're, most of them are finding themselves at capacity, spread thinly, working long hours, stressed out, like depressed, like the incidence of anxiety and depression in the legal profession is like at an all time high and trying to figure out why is it where I'm working harder and yet life's not getting easier. And much of it actually stems to a lack of being able to expand that capacity. So meaning that um, many law firms and law firm owners struggle in terms of like, how do I go beyond my own personal capacity? Like you can only work so many hours in a day, right? We all have 24 hours, you, you take out sleep, you, you eat, maybe you go to the bathroom and then you work. But there comes a point where beyond a certain number of hours, however many you're working, 60, 80, maybe 100 hours a week, um, ultimately you're going to have to have additional support. So that comes in the form of whether it's automation or whether it's hiring an additional team member, but then to hire a great team member requires being able to attract that team member, having a great hiring process, how to vet them properly. And then once they get in, how to, how to develop them properly, how to onboard them so that you're setting them up for success. And then also make sure that team member has perhaps a long-term career path. You have a way to be able to evaluate, you know, their key performance metrics to make sure that they're successful. And how, you know, and then let's say you expand from one person to twenty people, thirty people, forty people. The, the you know, the the magnitude of complexity that arises. So it's no wonder. I mean, it's there's it's of a completely different capability and perhaps a very different skill set that one has to develop to be a successful law firm owner versus a successful lawyer. 
Yeah, it's interesting hearing you talk about those things because I recently had a, uh, a guest on the podcast and he read a book called Never Lose a Customer Again. Um, and it's, we, we really talked about the ideas of how can a law firm make sure that their customer experience is, you know, so out there, incredible that, you know, they, these clients become raving fans and recommend others. Cause I mean, as you know, a lot of law lawyers survive on referrals from other clients and depend on that, you know, positive ratings, um, you know, on the internet and whatnot. I'm curious, you know, given what you just talked about, how, how do you help law firms with that? And, and to, you know, his next book was how to how, never lose an employee again, focusing on the experience that your employees have, which very, both of those called out to me because I, you know, I, I'm very passionate about our, what we deliver to our clients and how we deliver ultimately to our internal family or the people that are part of our team too. But I'm curious, you know, with your coaching, how do you guys work on those sorts of things? Yeah. So it, it's, it starts with first and foremost, I think getting clear on what your vision is as a firm owner and, and really what you want. Because if, if you don't have a, a, a target in place or if you're looking ahead, let's say three years from now or five years from now, how do you want to be spending your time? And what is, you know, what does the law firm look like? And what types of cases are you working on? And ultimately, what does your life look like? Because if you don't have targets or goals, then you really it's it's very difficult to make decisions because you don't know if one decision's leading you closer to or further away from wherever you want to go. And if you don't have a destination you want to achieve, then it, every, every decision is, is much more difficult to evaluate, right? But you can know, okay, if, if you do have a clear vision, now you can know when you're making a decision, hey, I'm going to hire this person, or I'm going to invest in the firm, or I'm going to invest in our infrastructure. That's something that can move you closer to, um, to your vision. So I think that's really where it starts, having clarity. Then it's really an assessment of where are your skills and capabilities, like what are your strengths? So for example, I know a lot of law firms, they I mean, every lawyer, I think at this point knows that they need to have some sort of standard operating procedures or systems and processes within their firm of how the work gets done to get it done in a repeatable way. But when, you, when you're speaking to a room of law firm owners, you ask, well, how many of you have processes written out for every single uh, aspect of your firm? It's like no hand goes up. So that tells me that in many cases, perhaps it's not the law firm owner uh, who should be writing those processes because it's like, you know, you need to do it, but most of the, most firms don't have it done. And it's, it's for me, for example, I'm not a process person, but we have members of our team, our, our COO, our director of operations, like they're super process driven and they love writing processes. So sometimes it's finding those complementary skill sets that allow you to operate in your strengths. I mean, there's a lot of firm owners that just want to, uh, want to live in the courtroom. They want to try cases and that's what they want to do and trying to turn that person into the CEO of their firm it may not be the best best thing for them if that's not what they want to do. That's not what excites them. It's not what engages them. However, that law firm still needs a CEO. So whether they're going to you know, promote from within or hire somebody externally, someone needs to run the day-to-day -day, uh, you know, operations of the law firm. Um, it could be you or it could be somebody else. So that's, I think that's the first realization that you don't have to do everything, but, but everything still has to get done. Um, and then from there, it's finding ways to be able to expand your capacity. Usually it comes through through hiring. But, you know, I think the, the gentleman you mentioned, Joey Coleman, right? It's uh, never, never, never lose a customer again. Yep. So, um, and we've actually, I'm very familiar with Joey. I've, I've had him on our podcast. We had him at one of our conferences a few years back. Um, phenomenal speaker, phenomenal author. And I agree in the sense that, you know, culture is everything. So we're very heavily focused on culture. 
because that's one of those things that attracts people to your organization. It's what engages people within your organization. And if, if your team is not engaged, you have to think, well, who's answering the phones? Who's uh, in many cases working one-to-one with your clients. And if you have someone that's just a disgruntled employee who just like despises the work they do every day, well, that's going to make a tangible business impact in, in your firm. So how do you get that person happy and excited about their, their role? Well, I think this actually starts with attracting the right people who you're, you're going to align on values that they have the right capabilities that, and then also providing them a path to actually succeed at the firm in terms of the work that they're doing, ways in which they can grow because your vision doesn't need to be their vision. So for example, like your vision at, at, you know, at the firm, may be one thing. So our vision, for example, is we want to help a thousand law firms grow their revenues by a million each. But when we have team members come into our organization, that's not their vision from birth, right? And you could think, well, how could somebody coming into our organization, how, why would they care about helping a thousand law firms grow their revenues by a million each? And the reality of it is initially, at least, they probably don't care because what that person cares about, their, their personal goals may be, they wanna pay off student loan debt, they wanna pay off credit card debt, they wanna buy a home, they wanna be able to travel, take certain vacations, who, who knows, right? Whatever it is they wanna do, but if they can connect how achieving our vision helps them achieve their personal goals, now, now we're in alignment, right? So now, now they're vested in what the organization is doing because it also helps them achieve what they wanna do personally and also achieve their professional goals too. So I think it's being able to connect all those things, but it really starts with you, the firm owner, being very clear on what it is that you want, having a clear assessment of what are your skills and capabilities, and then hiring for those you know, complementary skill sets to be able to fill those gaps, be able to expand to where you have additional support so that you can actually grow the firm. Because you know, if you're limited by the same number of hours each day, you have to find ways to be able to buy back your time. And I know a lot of people talk about working on, not in the business, but to be able to work on the business, you got to get out of the details. And the way to get out of the grind is to put more people between you and the grind. Well, very well said. And, you know, I mean, interestingly, this idea of uh, how law firms become more efficient um, and operate optimally, allowing uh, a trial lawyer who, who maybe wants to just be in the courtroom, you know, 100% 100% of the time or pushing his cases forward, uh, that type of lawyer may not be the right person uh, to be running the organization. But if it's going to be run like a, a corporation, there needs to be people in place. And that that idea of making sure that you ultimately have the right people in the right places, it's a fundamental business you know, foundation for success. You know, when, when we are working with law firms, one of the things that we're talking to them about is how can you free your staff up to, to work on the next case? How do you make sure that you are not getting bogged down in the details of things that are happening with settlements where you really can you know, take your time and, and spend it working with clients to get the next great result, either going to trial or resolving it pre, pre-litigation or what, whatever stage that, that case might be in. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering from your standpoint, your vantage point, you know, with a, if a law firm is going to operate more like a traditional business, one of the things I've seen that isn't done often is really a deep dive financial analysis of how the law firm is operating. And, you know, the, from the, the standpoint of working with external vendors to make sure that their practices are as efficient as possible. Are there things that you guys focus on with law firms to try and make sure that they have line of sight to those kinds of things and have metrics in place to look at all of those things? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'd say every firm, like, I mean, you, you get to a point where, and I, especially I think once you cross at least a million in revenue, where you can only manage really through metrics and you have to be able to evaluate key metrics and have dashboards. So like we encourage every single one of our firms to have dashboards that they're able to, to see every single day to not only know how their team's performing, but to know how the, you know, the various departments in the firm are performing and then the, the firm as a whole. So being able to have a proper cash flow forecast and being able to know, okay, what is our like next quarter look like? And cause, because then you can better diagnose challenges as well. You may say, Hey, you know, we don't uh, sometimes, Cash flow challenges are really just disguised as, uh, as, as, well, kind of flip that. Operational challenges are disguised as cash flow challenges. So meaning that someone says, well, why are you, you know, getting more cash in the door? But then you look at time on desk and you can look at certain metrics in, in terms of like how quickly cases are being moved forward and like just what that looks like. And you can differentiate it between non-attorney staff and attorney staff and see how various, if, if, if you run a pod structure, how they're moving cases forward and you'll see that there's variability, but all of those inputs lead to potentially lagging outputs. So yes, absolutely. And then also when you're making any sort of like investments within the firm, I mean, how can you determine whether you're going to invest in new infrastructure or being able to you know, hire an additional team member or being able to invest in marketing, for example, if you don't know your financial metrics and your business metrics, but then you get into also uh, questions around like profitability. Cause I mean, many law firm owners, they want to get to a point where they can you know, hopefully take some money out of the business, right? They want to be able to uh, reap the rewards at some point. I, I would encourage firms to not do this too early because I think then you can really stifle a lot of growth in the firm, but you get to a point where you want to run a profitable law firm to where you can have a certain level of just quality of life. And to be honest, a healthy organization. So we always say that the value of your law firm is inversely proportional to its dependency on you. So meaning that if your law firm is extremely dependent on you, and what this means is that if you did not come in for a month, what would your law firm look like? And would, would everything still get done? And if it did still get done, would, would the firm still grow, right? So not just like being able to run, but ultimately could the firm grow without you? Because if it can't, that essentially means that the firm is quite dependent on you. And if something were to ever happen to you, or let's just say one day you decide you don't want to do it anymore. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe you're just they're no longer excited. There's all of the people that depend on you, rely on you, your team members, their families, you know, your clients, their families, your community, and, and, and so on, that it really pays to have a, a law firm that is not dependent on you and to build it in a way where like you've got processes around, here's consistently how we get the phone to ring, right? Here's consistently how we answer the phones. Here's consistently how we onboard certain team members in certain roles. Here's how we do financial meetings. Here's how we you know, meet with our leaders. And like just there's a consistency and rhythm around how the work gets done. And that allows you a lot of freedom in terms of how you spend your time so that you can, you, it doesn't mean you essentially retire, but now you're able to focus on the things that you enjoy the most. They, you know, we have several firm owners that love nothing more than being in the courtroom and they're able to pick and choose their cases and that's what they do and they have no desire to retire. So it just gives you options, it gives you flexibility, but also with kind of where we're seeing the move to non-lawyer firm ownership and the, the rule you know, 5.4 stuff, that's also, if you, if you want capital, a lot of these organizations, I mean, Jason, I know you, you know this, when you're evaluating the health of a law firm, a lot of those metrics have to do with how dependent is that firm on the firm owner. And if you've got a firm that can operate independently of that firm owner, that there's a strong brand in place, there's a strong way in which just cash is generated, there's, there's leaders creating other leaders. It's just, it's a firm that can operate even if that firm owner were to retire. Well, that's a much more valuable law firm than one that is reliant on that person to show up every day. True for any, any business. So you've helped thousands of lawyers differentiate themselves from competitors and earn millions in new revenue including some really um, high 
profile, well-known law firms. Can you share three key strategies that you found to be most effective in helping those firms achieve that? Yeah. So I'll, I'll do my best to simplify this because I think it all starts number one with having clarity on what your message is. And we, you know, we, we say UVP, so unique, unique value proposition, uh, being very clear on why someone should hire your law firm and not another law firm. So, and, and you can't say things like, you know, we're the best or we'll fight hard for you and, you know, and things like that, because you have to think as a consumer, you know, when you're marketing to, to your community, they've got thousands of options. And if you're a personal injury, say contingency fee-based lawyer, I mean, the cost to work with every law firm is exactly the same. So it's essentially, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of supply and then there's limited demand. So how do you stand out and get noticed? And that's where your unique value proposition is, is very important. And that's what's how you set yourself apart. So it could be something like, and I'll just give a few examples. Um, it just could be that you grew up in the same community you now represent, that you have a passion for a specific type of case. Maybe you have, um, you, know, you focus specifically on traumatic brain injury cases or motorcycle accident cases, and you ride, for example, like things that really differentiate you from other law firms in the community. Um, I think customer service, it can be a, a tremendous differentiator as well. But then, you know, you, you of course have to live up to that marketing because there will come a point when someone will believe you and then they'll actually call your law firm and then you have to live up to the, to the promise that you've made. But I think it starts with having a unique value proposition. That's number one. Number two, um, this is where I think a lot of firms also fall short is you've got to get known and you've got to get your message out there. I mean, marketing simplified to, the, to its, uh, its greatest, to the bare bones essentially is marketing is just amplification of your message. And where you do that and what platforms you do it on, I mean, that can depend on the types of clients you're looking to attract. But at the end of the day, if your message isn't right and you're amplifying a message, you're investing in terms of ad spend and placement and media buying, uh, and the message is not dialed in and it's not focused, well, then you know, oftentimes the marketing, you're going to waste a lot of spend. It's not going to be nearly as effective. But even if you're a solo and you're a small firm, you still have to get noticed. I mean, you, you can be the best kept secret, but that's, I don't know that that's something you know, anyone should brag about because that also means they're probably living in a state of poverty. So I mean, essentially, you have to like, you know, no one in your community can hire you if they don't know about you. I mean, that's just, that, that's, that is just the reality. Now, it doesn't mean you've got to buy, you know, a bunch of radio ads and TV billboard, you know, TV uh, spots and billboards and things like that. But you do have to find ways to get your message out there. This can mean participating in community events. This can mean taking people to lunch. This can mean, you know, put, putting up videos on social platforms. It could be, you know, any of the traditional mediums as well. But you have to get noticed. And this is why I think a lot of, you know, smaller firms in general, they have like this resentment towards large traditional advertisers because they see them and they think, well, why, you know, why are people hiring them and calling them? And it's, it's just because consumers have a very difficult time of being able to tell one law firm apart from another. I mean, you visit their websites, they're all super lawyers, right? So like, how does a consumer know? I think it's a lot of times lawyers are marketing to other lawyers. And then in lawyer circles, they think, you know, that a consumer knows everything about every single law firm they're going to hire. But oftentimes the only reason they're hiring somebody is because They've seen them on TV. They've seen their videos, for example. Um, they see them give out turkeys at Thanksgiving, and they just like them. That's it. They don't know that they're board certified. They don't know where they went to law school. Like They just don't know. So that's the second one. And then I think the third component is to really make sure that you run your practice like a business because there's um, – you know, there's basically lawyers who happen to run a business and then there's business owners who happen to practice law. And you really, I mean, at this, you know, at this stage, it's no longer optional. And, and I say this in the sense that, I mean, probably since 1977, which is kind of like that Bates versus Arizona decision, which allowed for, you know, basically lawyer advertising to explode. But 
at this point, you have to be able to run your organization like a business because can you really provide the best legal services to your clients if you're spread thinly and if you're exhausted and you've got one foot out the door? I mean, is that how is that good for anybody? I think to, to provide clients with great legal representation, you want to be well-resourced. You want to have a great team that brings a ton of energy, that provides amazing customer service. I mean, that's that everybody wins then, right? I mean, the, your, your clients win, your community wins, your team members win, and ultimately you win as a result of that. So those are the three components. Yeah, it's funny. I, I look at a, a local firm that you know well, Morgan & Morgan, and you know see how true john has been in building that kind of model it's such a uh, clear example of winning at that very thing i mean it's unusual obviously the firm he's built and maybe it, it it would be hard to replicate that but the actual formula is seemingly you know exactly what you've just described yeah. And, and uh, one thing I'll, I'll note on, on the case of Morgan and Morgan, John mentioned this to me a few years ago, is uh, something that he said that I thought was valuable. It's, you know, anyone can execute something well one time, but to execute at a high standard 10,000 times every single week or every single month, I think that is what differentiates good businesses from great businesses and being able to execute at a consistently high standard to make sure all, you know, all the drivers within the organization, they're firing, that you've almost built like this flywheel, if you will, um, where each next step becomes the inevitable consequence of the one that preceded it. So it it's it's a testament to the importance of operational excellence. It's a testament to the importance of like culture and great leadership and and you know and, and really great execution. And it's funny, in talking about all this, you think, okay, well, where's the part about being a really great lawyer? And as we're talking about growing a great law firm, it's like, it's actually a fairly small part of it. Now you do still have to represent your clients well, but a lot of times the reason why clients refer and leave great reviews is not because of the, the size of the verdict they got. It's because of the, the quality of the experience they had working with your firm. Yeah, no, great point. And I mean, it's just how you scale, right? I mean, you have to be able to deliver that kind of experience for your clients and get results that, um, you know, is, is what's going to continue to feed into that. So um, can you share one or two of your most memorable success stories of law firms you've worked with and helped to grow? Man, I mean, at this point, it's we're, we're hearing so many of these. I mean, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a few examples. Right. So without without like naming like a specific specific firm. Uh, I'll, there's, and I'll give you a, at multiple ends of the spectrum. How about that? Uh, just, for, you know, you've got a small firm, you've got, you know, medium sized firm, large firm, everyone's got problems. I mean, you've got the, you've got the small firm that's trying to figure out how do I get the phone to ring? You've got the large firm that's, that's stuck at 50 million trying to get the, you know, the 80 million, right. And, and they each have their own headaches, right. So it's just interesting. Like, you know, it's, there's always another challenge and there's always another level. Uh, I would say that, you know, there's, there's one in particular, I don't want to go too dark, but I remember a conversation that I had several years ago with a firm owner. Uh, they like, I mean, they were working a hundred hours a week, exhausted. Um, they were dealing with personal issues at home. Um, it was a, a, a challenge. Like it was just like marital issues because she was working all the time. Um, her mother had just gone through like a cancer treatment. Um, and you know, it, it, she was struggling. Her team was just an absolute mess. It was a fire every single day. There was a problem every single day. The culture was a disaster. And this is someone that you know, reached out to me. Uh, this is actually shortly after the first book came out. So back in, uh, in 2018, and she essentially said that like, she'd look out her, you know, her building ledge every single day and said, I don't know if, you know, if I want to do this anymore. And I said, Whoa, you know, like, uh, and, and this was before we got into the coaching space. I actually say this is probably one of the, one of the, you know, one of the impetuses of, of moving in that direction. 
and she was working 100 hours a week. If you told her, hey, I think, you, you know, you need more, more marketing or more leads or whatever it is. I mean, I think that would have only made things worse. I mean, she was already busy as is. So she didn't need more things to do. She just needed better ways to get things done. And, you know, and, and through working with her, this is a you know, process probably about nine, 12 months. Um, she was able to not only start freeing up a lot of her time and gain a lot of like support, like her culture transformed as well. Um, and there's, you know, there's always a, a situation when, when you're undergoing like some sort of organizational change or some change in the culture. I have yet to see an example where you see a culture that's a disaster. And then, I mean, and that doesn't lead back to the firm owner. Right. Like somehow. Right. Because it's like you, you kind of you get what you allow. You get the standard at which you allow. And then also you if you're failing to have difficult conversations with team members, it's like, I mean, they're only going to perform to the standard at which you accept. Right. And then sometimes that means you've got to part ways with certain individuals to make room for for other individuals. So through that transformation, this is someone that transformed their culture. Um, was able to free up a lot of our time, expanded her capacity. And at the time we, which we met, I think her firm was, was under a million, it was around like 400,000. That firm has now grown to, I think, about 8 million as of like 2022 numbers. So it's, it's you know, and we'll see what the 2023 numbers are as well. Um, and then the interesting thing about it is like all the things that she was experiencing, it was the personal ones that were the most challenging because she was struggling because she wasn't at home, right? And she wasn't at home for her kids and she wasn't at home for her spouse. And, you know, and that was creating a lot of tension. So as she was freeing up time and ultimately creating a better, you know, organizational structure with operational structure, all of these different things. Now she's down, she's working probably like 30, 40 hours a week. And that changes everything now because she can be, you know, she can be with her kids. She can go to, you know, if they've got any kind of sporting event, she can be there. She can go on date nights with her husband. So that's a complete transformation. Um, we also at work with a firm owner uh, that was stuck at the probably the 50 million uh, revenue mark for a very long time. Super well-known market leader, traditional advertiser. And we had to kind of, you know, we kind of see the writing on the wall and he would see that, you know, we're investing more and more and more in our marketing, but um, we're starting to see you know, the value of these cases go down because it was a volume-based firm. We're starting to see just the number of calls go down, but we're having to really spend more to make less. And we fear that if we just push in entirely on the traditional advertising, that's not where the future is. So it was really two things that we did. One was uh, we had to rebrand the firm from being a more volume-based firm to being a trial-based firm. So they brought on an entire litigation team focusing on maximizing the value of cases, taking cases to trial. So that was like a very structural, a big structural change um, and also a big positioning change. And then also we shifted a lot of the ad spend and focus to now on, on social media and, and through to digital in particular. So a lot of that ad spend was re reallocated in the media buys from traditional to digital. And that firm is now scaled to, I think they exceeded a hundred million this past year, but it's because the average value of their cases grew, grew so dramatically because if you're, if you're operating off of high volume, soft tissue, auto accident cases, that's one thing versus, you know, your average case value going up because now you're taking on catastrophic cases. You're taking those to trial and now you're bringing in seven and eight figure cases and you don't have to refer them out. Right. So that that completely changed the model of the firm. So that's two. And then we've had instances where, you know, where firm owners like, you know, they'll they'll go on vacation or something. And they'll take their kids to, you know, to Disney World and they're stressed out the whole time because they're away from their from their 
uh, from their firm and they're thinking, man, I've got to check my phone. I've got to bring my laptop with me. I've got to, you know, just, they're on vacation, but they're really mentally not. So they're just, and they also like every time they walk through the gift shop, they're like, man, what's this going to cost? Like that, that's too early to take a trip versus being able to enable someone to be able to go take, you know, a month off, two months off and be with their family and not have to worry about what's going on at their law firm because they've got a great team that's running it. So I think it's, it's examples like that again and again and again and again that just, that just continue to happen. But the credit really belongs to the doers, right? That they're the ones that are, that are executing. I don't know. I mean, you know, there, I think there's now online, like there's there a lot of things have been popularized through like, you can take this course and it's like these three steps and all, all this stuff. But the reality of it is, is this is hard work. I mean, you've got to be able to, uh, but I, but here's the thing. I think the reality of it is you're already working hard. It's just, you know, apply that same energy and effort in ways that are much more productive. And a lot of times it just, it requires a different approach. So I find that sometimes, you know, it can be beneficial to learn from other lawyers and other law firms, but sometimes it's actually beneficial to look outside of the industry too, because I, I'll give you an example. I don't know that lawyers and law firms should be learning about customer service and client experience and culture from other law firms, because I don't know that law firms are known for those things. You know, when we were, when we approach customer service and client experience, we bring in the Ritz Carlton. I think they do you know, a phenomenal job or we look at Disney. And I think those are organizations that are really kind of setting the standard for what it means to provide, you know, great service and a great client experience that perhaps the lesson should be, you know, applied from other industries and brought into the legal space. Yeah. You know, that point, just the way law firms have traditionally operated and, you know, how people experience that. I, I think Joey made the point when I was talking to him about, well, that's usually like, that's the last place you want to go, right? It's sort of like, you don't want to go to the dentist. You don't want to go to the lawyer's office. Um, but, you know, compounded with that, you know, law firms have traditionally not operated in this framework that you've outlined, which, you know, is part of the, the learning curve for people in, this industry is start adopting that and best practices from outside to make the the business run the right way and have people experience it the way because you know, particularly with personal injury and, and having been through this myself and you know been through the whole process with a personal injury law firm and it happened to be a friend who represented me you know that that experience probably for me was much different because it was a friend who was texting me you know i mean but there's also, there is a bit of, because a personal injury is very personal. You know, I know just from what I went through, how much it, it, it changes your life and everything that's going on as part of that whole process, it, it's overwhelming. Even for me who had been, you know, had done insurance defense work as a lawyer, had been in the settlement services world for 20 years when it happened, I still struggled with the whole thing, you know, e even just trying to get my insurance to cover dental reconstruction work from the dental injuries I suffered. It's so, you know, that how, how do law firms ultimately deliver what a client needs and what you're doing, I think is, is just incredible from the standpoint of focusing lawyers on thinking in these different ways. Yeah. I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I mean, the, the, the reality of it is this is not some 
some fantasy or like some horizon where if someone hears like i can't imagine having the the freedom to be able to operate in my strengths and being able to have like a, a team that is self-managing and a great culture and a great organization and you know some people sometimes like they'll say i don't want to build a big law firm that just sounds like a lot of people to manage and it sounds like you know it just sounds like a lot of headaches but i can i can promise you i mean you, you know so number one, the type of law firm you want to build is completely up to you. I think that is a personal decision, but I can say from experience and in working with so many law firms that it is much easier to run a law firm when you've got a large support team with a ton of capabilities and skill sets than when it is to do it all by yourself. And so bigger is not always worse and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's harder. You're going to have problems, you know, as a small firm, you're going to have problems as a medium sized firm, even a large firm but you're going to be able to better navigate those problems if you have a great team around you. Yeah, hundred percent. And I found that in growing my own company, we have got about hundred team members today and you know, it certainly is a lot of work and you've got to make sure you get the right people in the right seats and do all the things that we've been talking about. Uh, but once you do that, the freedom it gives you as uh, an owner is, immense and and that allows you to spend your time focusing on what your highest and best use is within an organization so you know for for many lawyers i think understanding that and realizing it and how to leverage that is incredible opportunity that you guys are focusing trial lawyers on so uh, i think that that's really great i, I wanted to ask because I, I mentioned the whole tesla thing and you guys have this crazy conference with, um, you know, I, I don't know how many people attended this year. I know you did it at the, uh, the super, still called the Superdome in Atlanta. Uh, no, no, so in Atlanta, it's just Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Yeah. The, the one in uh, New Orleans is the, is the other, you know, it's kind of our rival over there. Uh, but you know, it's just interesting to me, you know, all of that in what you do and how that, how that came from what you're doing with law firms, if it did. Yeah. Yeah. So the, so the cars is interesting since 2017, we've given away 17 cars and it's, you know, when you think about that, you're like, wow, it's, it's, it's wild. But when you go back to, to the first year that we did it, and again, this is an entirely bootstrap business. I didn't have any investors. We didn't have any partners. I started in 2012, $500 to my name. And so I, I'll, I'll tell you early on, I think this is probably 2016 or so. I mean, we were growing incrementally, but we were a very, very, very small player. Um, we were severely under-resourced. I saw, I mean, there's these massive organizations that, you know, it was just very difficult to compete. And I remember we were having these conversations internally and saying, just like, I, I told the team, like, we've got to do something to, to make an exponential leap. We've got to get noticed something to get some sort of attention. And I didn't even, I didn't believe in the power of brand then. I thought brand was this, this intangible concept. Like every, everything, everything we did in marketing had to be like a dollar in and like a dollar 50 back or something like that. Right. That's how my mind operated then. And I, I couldn't have been more wrong, but I, uh, you know, so the idea behind the car was that, well, what, what if we gave a car away? I didn't see anybody doing that at the time. And we said, well, what if, what if it's a Tesla? And once I got that idea in my mind, I mean, people have asked me, they're like, well, how did you give away a Tesla? Well, the secret was back in 2017, you just go to the Tesla dealership, you write them a $77,000 check and they give you a Tesla Model S. So like, that's all you have to do. And I understand what people are really asking. They're like, well, how do you make sense of that? Um, I had probably close to like 80,000 savings at the time. So this was depleting the whole thing. And we thought, well, this would be a really interesting referral program because if we're giving away a big prize like this, then maybe like our clients would want to refer other clients to us. So, I mean, they were already referring, but this would be, an, you know, probably an even greater in incentive. But it, I think it would also get attention from other people within our industry. 
And I remember once I got the car, I parked it in front of our office. Um, and we announced this program that we thought was going to be a huge success. 30 days in, nothing. I mean, we didn't get a single referral. Like It was almost like the program didn't even exist. And at that point, uh, my eyes started to twitch. And I started to think that I just make the single biggest mistake that I'd ever made in the business because I, I mean, I didn't drive the car every morning. I would drive in, I'd see it parked out front and, you know, got to figure out a way to, to ultimately make this campaign successful. And what we learned then, this was back in 2017, is that nobody believed, we, I mean, the, the, the prize was so, you know, insane that no one believed we were actually doing it. So we had to actually do more marketing to, to show that, yes, we're really giving a car away. And then ultimately we ended up giving that car away at the uh, AVO Logonomics Conference back in, uh, I think it was April of 2017. That was a success. Um, we ended up doing it again the following year, uh, with this time with the Tesla Model X um, at the start of 2018. And then that one, like that program went well, but the giveaway was so anti-climatic. I mean, we did it at another conference. And when we did it, it was like right after Super Bowl Sunday. There was like nine people in the room. We drew the name of our winner. They weren't even there in that city at that conference. So it was just... I, at that point, I said, well, we're never going to give away you know, our grand prize at another conference again. So why don't we just host our own conference? And that's what led to the Game Changers Summit. So we did that first conference you know, in 2018. And I think we've done five conferences uh, since then. The biggest one being this past November, which we did at that you know, Mercedes-Benz football stadium where the Falcons play. And we had 5,000 law firms. But all this has really been, it's, it's kind of like one thing leads to the next. So it's like when the first program was successful, that gave me the confidence to, to invest again and go bigger that time. And then at our conference the first year back in 2018, we gave away, uh, I think it was like three Teslas, three Tesla Model 3s this time. So at that point, I'm already at five cars, right? So I only had 12 to go. Um, but it, it's each time was just around, it's, it's similar to like the principles that, you know, you market when you're building a brand. It's like, we're trying to build community to be able to build community and to be able to grow our brand. I've got to get attention. I've got to get people to know who we are. They got to hear about Chris, but maybe the only thing they hear is that we gave a car away. They don't even know what we do, but that's going to get them intrigued and it's going to get someone's attention. And I'm one step closer, right. To, to kind of getting them into our ecosystem. So that's really how it, how it grew from one to the next. So, um, We'll, we'll wrap up here uh, in a minute. I, the last question I wanted to ask you about, and I don't want to have you give away your the entirety of your book, but um, I, I thought it would be good to talk a little bit about key things that maybe we haven't covered that are topics in the book that you think would be relevant for someone listening to this podcast to understand. Yeah, so if, if you're talking about the game-changing attorney, so that's the first book. I'm actually putting the finishing touches on the second book. That'll be out later this year. Um, the first book being a marketing yeah. book. The second book, thank you, is, is more of a, uh, uh, a law firm leadership book. So very, very different topics. But uh, on the first book, The Game-Changing Attorney, I think the big thing that like, I, I remember looking back because I've reread it several times and sometimes I'll read it and I'm like, man, like, uh, like what, what was I thinking? And then sometimes I'll read it and I'll say, that, you know, I tried to be very platform agnostic because I knew that from the time of writing that book, the platforms would change, like the different social media platforms would change. So I didn't want to go into the specific steps of like, here's how you do this on a platform that could eventually, you know, no longer be in existence. But all the principles, it's funny, I read the book again, probably a couple months ago, everything still holds up. All the focus on brand is so still so important. I mean, when you're going to see changes right now, we're seeing changes in SEO. You're seeing like you know, AI and chat GPT and new technologies and all these different platforms coming and going and just all these evolutions. And yet the thing that always remains constant is the importance of building brand. And brand is really your reputation, getting people to know you and like you and trust you. And that's agnostic of any platform. 
Um, I would also say that there, you know, throughout that book, there's uh, at the end of each chapter, there's like a mindset check. And these are kind of like these gut checks I put at the end of each each chapter really to to make sure that because I imagine, you know, when you, someone's going in to read this, they're going to be the skeptic. They're not going to believe it. Like every law firm that we give examples of, I, like I include here's their information. You can reach out to them. You can contact them. You don't believe this actually happened. This is a real life human being. So like all that's there. But the mindset checks are so important because it's kind of like the call BS type type situation where it's like, okay, maybe you don't think this is possible for you, or maybe you don't agree with this, or maybe, you know, or whatever it is. And I would pay particular attention to those because the reality of it is, is that the outcomes that you have today in your life, in your law firm are a, di a direct result of your actions. And your, your actions are a function of your decisions and your decisions are as a result of your mindset. Your mindset is the lens through which you see the world. So if you are not pleased with where you are today, where your law firm is today, well, you made all the decisions that got you there, right? So at some point, you have to start making different decisions. And I would recommend to anyone, who didn't, it doesn't even have to be listening to me, or just, but just find someone that, you know, okay, I'm going to buy into what it is that they're doing because I trust them. I've seen their results. I believe in them. Maybe it's another successful law firm owner. It could be whoever, right? But at, at some point, you're going to have to do things that, some, that may seem counterintuitive to you. Because if they made sense to you, you'd already be doing them. But ultimately, if your situation is not, let's say you're just not in a good financial place, your culture isn't right, your leadership isn't strong, maybe you suck at all those things and maybe you need to get a different perspective on them. And now you can start making like, so I, I give the example and I hope this isn't too crude, but uh, I think if someone's been listening to this point in the podcast, then you know maybe we got them at this point um, and they've been listening long enough. But I would think, okay, Tim Cook, who's the CEO of Apple, right? This multi-trillion dollar company. If Tim Cook came into my organization and said, Michael, I think every morning you've got you've to eat bull testicles. I'd say, well, Tim, that sounds a little bit unusual to me, but you're running this multi-trillion dollar company. You've had incredible success in building the most valuable company in the world. Okay, I'll do it, right? I'll give it a shot, Tim, if you, if you believe that's the right thing to do. And I'm not saying you got to do crazy, funky things, but the reality of it is, is sometimes the feedback that you're going to get may seem counterintuitive to you because you just you operate on a certain set of principles and you operate and you see the world in a certain way. But if you want to get a different outcome, you've got to you've got to change your mindset at some point. So that's I would pay particular attention to the mindset checks. Well, your point, uh, two things. One, the, the brand is is so spot on because it, it's just something that I'm very connected to and deeply believe in. Just that that the importance of your brand. Um, but two, the the writing the book. Um, kudos, uh, I've I've written one, and my my second one's about to come out. I would love for you to come back when you release your second book and talk about all the kind of key issues in that, because we, we've sort of danced around it a bit, but I think those would be great to continue the dialogue. But I, I'm curious cause you, you, I think you sort of alluded to this idea of, of taking risk and how you, how you've taken those risks. How does that translate to law firms in taking risk and really getting to the next level of, yeah of their organizations. Man, I'm glad you asked that question because I think this is really the, this plays a big role, especially in the second book, but I'll give, I'll give you kind of a preview of it. I, I really do think that this is the X factor that differentiates firms that are, you know, that kind of are at the six figure level, seven figure level, eight figure level, nine figure level, because after working with enough law firms and we've had hundreds of them on our podcast as well, you start to see that like the differentiator isn't their work ethic. I mean, everybody works hard, right? And so that's, that's not a factor. Um, and it's not, it's not their level of intelligence because I, I saw no correlation there whatsoever. I'd see people that are extremely intelligent and extremely unsuccessful in business. And those that maybe not would score high on cognitive tests that were extremely successful. 
So that wasn't really the, you know, um, a key factor. It really came back to, to courage, which is, I think, a function of risk-taking. And I, if you really want to break it down, it's more so looking at how do you properly evaluate risk? Because I think one person looks at risk as saying, well, what if I lose? And then another person evaluates risk of saying, well, I can't win if I don't take a chance. So like meaning that sometimes the greater risk is to not actually make a decision and to not actually move forward and to not make the investment. And I also believe that a lot of people believe that they always have to be right and they always have to win when in reality, the most successful firm owner that I know, like today, that is running, I'd say, a firm that generates over a billion dollars in fees a year would, would probably very comfortably say with humility that... Um, 49% of his decisions have been wrong decisions and 51% have been right decisions. And, but no one's looking at the 49% because they were just willing to make those attempts and they were, they were more right than wrong. So it's, it's not about being perfect and making every decision right. Like not every person you go, you're going to hire is going to be the perfect hire, right? There's going to be people that you hire that may go through a great hiring process, may increase your odds of success, but you get them in and then something happens in their life. Some life change happens. It doesn't work out. You have to find another, you know, another person for that role, for example. So that happens all the time. But I think I meet some people that they take a punch and then they stay down. And then there's others that like will take a punch and then they keep going and, you know, into the championship rounds. Like they just, they keep pushing forward. So maybe that's grit, but I, I ultimately believe that it's courage and it's the willingness to, to write the check, to invest in your firm, to invest in yourself, because you know, you can't win if you don't play. And in, in, what's the saying? It's like, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So the, the reality of it is, is you're going to have, like, I've always looked at risk as the greater risk for me was not taking the, the risk, right? So meaning that my odds of success, not making this decision of not moving this initiative forward are 0%. Like I cannot, I cannot grow the business if we don't do something. Um, and then if I do it, my odds of success aren't a hundred percent, but they're better than zero. So ultimately, you know, you can bounce back from just about anything. I mean, you don't want to bet the firm on any one decision. Like I'm, I'm never making investments that are like, you know, if this one doesn't work out, we're done for like, I mean, I think you have to be responsible with that, but at the same time, instead of trying to like play the perfect hand, you just have to be able to get reps in. Right. And then it, again, some of the most successful people that I know, uh, would argue that they've have also had the greatest amount of so-called failure. But to me, failure is only when you give up, right? It's not failure until you quit. So last question, um, open-ended, you can answer it however you want. What's your view as a legal growth industry expert? And there's something we haven't covered that you think's an important last thing. Hopefully people listen to the very end to catch this yeah. last important point if, if you've yeah. got one. Okay, and I, so... I think we saw a good bit of this in 2020, which is a good like perspective on how the legal industry uh, embraces change or perhaps does not embrace change. So if you look at other industries, the legal industry has been very much behind when it comes to evolution of like technology and adopting like you know changes in perspective and and just approaches and so on. But you know our hands were forced right in 2020 with COVID, where people had to go remote right? At least for that time. And we had to start moving like technology forward in terms of the infrastructure at a law firm. So being able to have voice over IP phone services and being able to do meetings and calls and depositions via Zoom and just being able to have like, you know, case management and intake management, and all those systems in place. Because if you, if you didn't, you're, you're, you're basically screwed. Um, now, and, and change has been a constant. Also in 2020 was when rule 5.4, um, just essentially the, the rules around non-lawyer firm ownership were eliminated in Arizona. That's where the ABS, ABS structure um, was also created. They, they piloted a sandbox program in Utah. This is the future. 
non-lawyers will co-op with other lawyers and non-lawyers will run practices in America. And this is not some 10 year distant future. It's already here. I already know the firms have got the ABSs. Um, you can look to other industries like the medical and dental industry for what happens when you see uh, kind of the private equity and venture capital moving in and how it's, you know, in dental, for example, you've got Aspen Dental, um, just what that looks like and how it happens. And there's going to be, firms are going to respond, I think, in a number of ways. One firm's going to look at it and say, the sky's falling or I'm too old for this shit. And like, and it's just going to be too, you know, maybe they, they're going to think this is crazy. Another one's going to say, hey, it's not in my lifetime. It's going to be, you know, too far off in the distant future. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. But I think the one that truly, you know, embraces this and says, hey, this is the future. Non-lawyers are going to be running law firms in America. But what are the opportunities that this creates? And it creates a lot of great opportunities around being able to attract capital, being able to attract great talent, and ultimately being able to build and scale your law firm or even one day sell your law firm. Because right now, if a lawyer wanted to sell their law firm, their options are really to sell it to another law firm. And if you're running a decent-sized firm, your options are pretty limited of who you can sell to because of who the buyers are. So even the value that you can gain from your law firm is capped. So you, I mean, you would pray for non-lawyer firm ownership because your multiples would be higher and you could, you could gain a greater exit or you could even attract capital in a much better way. So I think there's a lot of exciting opportunities coming down the line, but it always comes back to how people approach change. And one person is going to be terrified and kind of dig their head in the sand. Another one's going to look at and say, well, what are the opportunities this creates and how do we pivot our law firm and adapt to this new reality? It's interesting. Uh, I saw a lawyer quoted recently saying that in five years, if you can't run your law practice from your iPhone, that you're you're going to be behind the time significantly. And it's interesting, just you know, the the how slow technology and change has been embraced in the legal profession. But it seems like and I agree with everything you outlined that that pace is going to accelerate in a way, in something that no one's ever seen. And I think it's going to come much more swiftly than anyone really anticipates. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think the quote you mentioned five years from now, running your iPhone, I would say today, if you cannot run your law firm from your iPhone, I would argue you're behind the times. I mean, it's, it's all there, right? And five years is a long time. When you, when you think about it, like it, that is a, that is a distant future. I mean, if you look back, like, I mean, I know it seems like COVID was a decade ago, but that's, I mean, that's just a couple of years ago, right? And like the world was quite different. And now today, and you know, in 2023, I mean, who knows? Like five years from now, a lot of change is going to happen. So, but I also think it's, if you can embrace that, that's also where the biggest shifts in the marketplace happen. So if you're a small firm, you are better off actually in, in these times of change because it gives you the most opportunity to grow. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so if anyone is listening today and wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to reach you? Yeah. So we've got a podcast. It's called The Game Changing Attorney. Um, so I, I put out a podcast every week. Um, I've also, you, you can go to our website, crisp.co, or I, I've got a website, it's just Michael Mogul, M O G I L L dot com. Well, I really appreciate you joining me today. Great, great content. I'm, I'm really anxious to to have other trial lawyers uh, tune in and hear hear those those nuggets of wisdom that you've given today and um, thank everybody for listening today and we'll see you on the next episode great thank you for having me thanks for tuning in to trial lawyer review you can find more at trial and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future